Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to begin in verse 18. Scripture says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Thus says God's word, you may be seated. So the context of Hebrews chapter 7, and in fact, the entire book of Hebrews, is the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. The requirement of the Old Testament law, if you're not very familiar with the Old Testament law and the covenant, it was this, that high priest and priest, in fact, in general, could only arise from the family of Aaron, which was part of the tribe of Levi. There were 12 tribes. Levi was one of the tribes. Aaron was one of the families in the tribe. You had to be of the family of Aaron to be a priest. And, and this seems to a Jew who might be reading this in the first century, this would seem like that the qualifications of Jesus Christ to be a priest would be thrown into question because Jesus descended, the, the writer tells us earlier, from the family of David, not Aaron, and from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And, and so the, but the argument of this chapter, and as I said, the whole book of, of Hebrews, is that Jesus has taken the role... From the Old Testament, he has taken the role, and he is our only high priest now. And aren't you glad? Aren't you so glad? Hebrews 7 bases the argument on the fact that though Christ didn't come from Aaron or Levi, he bases the fact of Christ's priesthood on the fact that he came after the order of another priest named Melchizedek, which predated Aaron. And this was prophesied in Psalms 110 verse 4, which the book of Hebrews actually quotes a couple of times. Now, if you aren't familiar with Melchizedek, we're not going to take the time today to explain Melchizedek, but you can find his whole story in the book of Genesis chapter 14 and get this, four verses. Four verses is all we have historically about this character Melchizedek from, from uh, Genesis 14, 17 through 20. And, and this, this indication when, when the, the writer of Hebrews makes such a big deal to say that Jesus didn't come from Aaron but he came from Melchizedek, it gives us this great indication that the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament was never meant to be permanent. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament law, that's good news for you. 
that the Levitical law was never meant to be permanent. In fact, Hebrews 7 spends most of the chapter pointing to several difficulties that existed in the old priesthood. In verse 18, this is where we picked up this morning, in verse 18, the law and the priesthood are describing as having weakness and uselessness on the basis of their inability to make anything perfect. Now, this doesn't mean that the law was flawed or, or worthless and it wasn't, wasn't necessary. It, it just simply means that its ultimate purpose, the ultimate purpose of the Old Testament law, was diagnostic. It, it, it could tell you how unlike God you were, but it offered no assistance whatsoever to improve your status. It could tell you, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're, God's here in holiness and you're down here somewhere, but it didn't help you bridge the gap. It was like having cutting-edge medical equipment that could tell you with 100% certainty, you are dying and this is the date of your death, but the same equipment could offer no treatment and no cure. Because of this, the law could only temporarily enable us to draw near to God. And only with the fear, with fear and trembling could we do so under the old covenant. But with the fulfillment of the law and with the establishment of a covenant of grace in Jesus Christ, Hebrews tells us, get ready, that a better hope is introduced through which we can draw near to God. That is one of the great, sometimes often ignored benefits of the old, uh, of the new covenant rather, that it allows you to have access to the very throne room of God. The very throne room of God where if you had stumbled in under the old covenant, you would have been instantly killed because of your wickedness. But now a better hope's been introduced and you, yes you, can walk right in to the presence of God with boldness. Next, the old priesthood priesthood had no guarantee of continuance. On the other hand, the Bible says in Hebrews that God had promised Christ on oath, you, Jesus, are a priest forever. The law saw many priests come and go because, let's face it, they eventually died. Therefore, you had this constant rhythm in the Old Testament of godly, faithful priests who would be followed by wicked, unfaithful priests. And it's just rinse and repeat, kind of a cycle over and over and over again. But here's the good news, church. Jesus remains a priest forever because, as Narcy just pointed out to us, he continues forever. He has died. He is risen, never more to die again. He will not have to be replaced as the high priest because he ain't going nowhere. And this is where we come to this beautiful pinnacle statement in Hebrews 7.25 where it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Praise God. Jesus Listen, I don't care where you're at this morning. I don't care how you stumbled in here. I don't care what your week looked like. Jesus Christ is unhindered in his ability to fully save you. He is able to save you fully, even in spite of all of your sin, all of your addiction, all of your despair, all of your persecution, all of your doubt, for the one simple fact that he lives forever. He's able. He's able. 
He always, every moment of every, every day for the rest of eternity, He presents His perfection before the Father, His perfect obedience. And He does so not on His behalf, but on yours. And He says, I am perfect and I have given my perfection to them. This sacrifice, this, this ultimate act of obedience, the Hebrews over and over again says it's once and for all. It's a once and for all sacrifice. Unlike this, this flood of blood from bulls and goats that were offered continually by imperfect priests under an imperfect covenant for generations. Once and for all. And lastly, unlike the priests under the law, our great high priest Because he is spotlessly sinless and perfect, he doesn't concern himself with atoning first for his own sins and and his own failures before he can intercede for yours. See, he has no sins. He has no failures. So he can get right down to business of talking to God about yours. Hebrews describes Jesus in that passage we read this morning as holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Listen to me carefully. If you need a priest to plead your case and be your advocate, Jesus Christ is the kind of priest you need. He is the kind of priest that you need. And in Hebrews 70, 728 rather, tells us that the oath of God the Father, the oath of God the Father, who will not change his mind, Hebrews says, and in another place says, cannot lie. The oath of God the, God the Father has appointed Jesus Christ as a priest, beloved by God and made perfect forever. Now knowing this, Knowing this fact and believing it should always result in worship. It should always result in a heart that is exploding with worship. How can you possibly restrain praise when you think of how the man Jesus Christ right at this moment is seated at the right hand of God as a constant reminder of the end of all sacrifice, of all penance, of all groveling. His sacrifice was perfect. It was once once and for all never to be repeated. And that means... What's in it for you? I'm going to tell you. That means this, that there will never be a time when God ceases to be pleased with what Christ has done on your behalf. It'll never happen. You will never reach that day. He'll never renegotiate your forgiveness. You are not on an adjustable rate mortgage with God. He will not renegotiate. He's never going to require you to do something more for your justification. Justified in Jesus is justified forever. Because of Christ's perfect obedience and his unending status as the priestly mediator between God and his church, God has also appointed Christ to be the undisputed head of his church. He is the boss. This theme is repeated often in Scripture. 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and other places as well. And it settles forever the question of who is really in charge of the church, even as we consider how that works itself out functionally. So we have a lot of guests this morning. I'm going to tell you, if you came here wanting to ask some questions about who's in charge here, I'm going to tell you without kidding, blinking, or exaggerating, Jesus Christ is in charge of this place. He's the one who's in charge. 
To say Jesus on the basis of his redeeming work as the head of the church means that he is the only, O-N-L-Y, only, sovereign, all-wise, all-powerful authority residing above the church. In reality, in reality, actually, he is the fully present boss of this place and not some silent partner. He's the one in charge. And sadly, that doesn't mean, sadly, that every single church on every single corner acknowledges this fact or is governed in full subjection to his authority, even if they give lip service to it. It also doesn't mean uh, the churches like we want to be that, and, and leaders that are convinced of this truth and committed to it, perfectly submit at all times to Jesus' leadership. Let me let you in on a dirty little secret. Human sin will always complicate the best of both our efforts and our intentions. Are we the only ones? Our problem with understanding Christ's supreme authority in the church has been complicated to listening to deceptions and, and, and assumptions of men rather than the rock-solid revelation of Scripture. Uh, the Catholic Church, just for example, has christened the Pope the Bishop of Rome. But they, I think... And not trying to be unkind, I think the Catholic Church crosses a line of blasphemy when they also give the Pope the title, the Vicar of Christ. The title, the Vicar of Christ, used by the Vatican for the Pope, comes from the Latin term, vicarius Christi. And the word vicarius is the root of vicarious, and it means instead of. So to say that the Pope rules as the Vicar of Christ is to say that the Pope rules instead of or in the stead of Christ. According to Catholic doctrine, Jesus, in Matthew 16, granted rule of the church apostolically to Peter, who then, according to Catholic doctrine, began a, 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 an unbroken line of papal uh, succession all the way from Peter in the first century to Pope Francis in the 21st century. But there's a lot of problems, both historical and doctrinal, with this belief. For example, nothing, I, you can scour it when you get home from Matthew to Revelation, nothing like a plan for the Pope papacy is ever mentioned in Scripture. Nowhere. It's not there. Nor is Peter. Let's, let's start with the first pope. Neither is Peter mentioned anywhere in Scripture as having any special apostolic authority. Neither by himself, he never mentions it in his books, nor by any other writer of Scripture. Additionally, his name is not even mentioned in the book of Romans. Now, why is that important? Because he was supposedly a bishop in Rome for 25 years. Even though the book, was, it's not mentioned in the book of Romans, even though the book was only written seven years before Peter's supposed execution. This matters because surely, if he were the first pope, if he were the, the bishop of Rome at that time, Paul would have mentioned him, especially considering, listen to this fact, that he specifically mentions no fewer than 29 specific members of that congregation in the last chapter of his book alone. Don't you think he would mention the guy who's in charge of the whole thing? And you should know that there are also gaps in the supposed line of unbroken apostolic succession, notably at its beginning, as well as some late opposition to the idea of a pope-like role in the church. As late as 256 A.D., 
the church father Cyprian was arguing at the Council of Carthage that the Bishop of Rome was just one among many bishops. A bishop was someone who had regional authority in churches, and he was saying the Bishop of Rome is no more special than any other bishop, and he shouldn't attempt to be a bishop of bishops and exercise some sort of tyrannical powers. But more troubling, this misunderstanding of who's really in charge eventually contributed to this rise of this doctrine called papal infallibility. In Catholic understanding, this is a spiritual gift that's, that's designated specifically for the pontiff, the pope, and it states that when a pope speaks officially on matters of morals and doctrine, he cannot, he cannot be wrong. That's problematic. So you just get out there and go get those Catholics, Mark. You show them who's boss. We'll, we'll show them. If Martin Luther didn't do enough, we'll finish the job, right? But why are we just picking on Catholics? Because Protestants never do things like that, right? Right? Their understanding of church authority and Jesus being the head is absolutely perfect, right? Absolutely not. Every subset of Protestant Christians I have ever met has been guilty at times of assigning their own pope. Every single one. Every subset of Christians. If you're charismatic, if, you're, if you identify as part of that movement and you're charismatic, your pope might be Bill Johnson or, or Benny Hinn. If you're name it, claim it, word, faith movement, then your pope might be Joel Osteen or Kenneth Copeland. So, so we've picked on those guys, so we're, the rest of us are okay, right? If you're reformed, like I claim to be, your pope might be John Piper or John MacArthur. But even if none of those names mean anything to you, and I'm sure that there's several of you that that applies to, even if none of those names mean anything to you, you may tend to obsess over human authority in the local church as well. Usually it's the denominational leader or the pastor or that one person that makes big contributions coupled with big demands. I remember... Uh, you know, when Ginger and I were growing up in Odessa, there was one wealthy oil man that famously and publicly got sideways with his church. And so he pulled his big bucks out of there. And the way that he solved the problems of whatever was causing him angst is that by golly, he bought and paid for his own church, built it from the ground up, put his name on the deed. And he thought, we're not going to have these kind of problems in churches if I just hire and fire pastors deacons, elders as employees, subject to me. That man was a pope. I don't care what his doctrine was, he was a pope, right? I can't remember what the name of the church was, but I think it was when I say jump, you say how high fellowship, or or maybe it was my way or the highway tabernacle, I don't remember. You were there, weren't you? Any, Listen to me, in all seriousness, folks, Any church fight that results in a church split is always because one side or both sides are grasping for power that doesn't belong to them. They're grasping the power that was never granted to them. And it could have been avoided the whole messy thing. And if you've ever been through a church split, it feels like a divorce. I mean, it'll wreck you. And and, and if, you've, if you've been that through that, let me just tell you, all of that pain that you suffered could have been avoided if the people arguing would have just remembered who was really in charge. Ephesians one twenty two 
makes this issue very, very clear. It says, and he, meaning God, the father, put all things under Christ's feet. And he gave him, gave who? Gave Jesus. He gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what that's saying is that God the Father has, as a gift, given Jesus to the church to be in charge so we don't have to argue about who is. He's, he's the head of it all, of all things to his body, the church, that fills all in all. Colossians 1.18 very similarly says that he, meaning Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And this last phrase is very important. That in what? And everything he might be preeminent. Not your pastor, not your deacon, not your elder, not your denominational leader, not the televangelist. That he might be preeminent. This is not In any building that's gathering in his name, it's not about the guy who's standing behind the pulpit this morning. It is about Jesus. He's in charge. He's the boss. He's the object of worship. And there is none other. And if there is, the church has got some serious, serious problems. But if this is true, let's get real. How does that work functionally? How does the unseen Christ rule the church in actual practice? Let me just tell you this, if we go to the bank needing, say, a loan, and they say, who is going to be the guarantor of this loan? And I tell them, Jesus Christ. I'm no financial wizard, but I'm probably not getting the loan. Similarly, if we're involved in a legal entanglement and we need to put a name on a document, I can't FedEx the document to heaven and get Jesus to sign it. So in a world where that doesn't recognize Christ as the head of the church, how does this all work out? How do we recognize him in a world that doesn't? First, the first thing, absolute, uh, uh, undeniable thing, is an absolute commitment to his written word. We have an unshakable commitment to this word. That's how he's in charge. This means that... None of us look to our own intellects or our business acumen or our political influence or our religious experiences or our cultural preferences as our first rule of faith and practice. We look first and foremost to the clear, authoritative, sufficient, written Word of God. And this requires something of us. It requires us to be familiar with this Word. If this Word has a quarter inch of dust on it, then I'm not going to be able to lead as Jesus dictates because I'm not going to know what the heck he said. Are you following me? I got to be familiar with the things that this wonderful book says. And we've got to be committed not just to know what it says, but when we have real world decisions to make, we first consult this book before we make any decision. If Jesus is really in charge, then what he has already said is the most compelling argument in any discussion or debate. What he has said trumps everything I might think. And this also requires that we, I mean all of us, are people who are willing to speak up to one another and who hold each other accountable to the standards that are already laid down in the clearly revealed word of the one who is to be the head of his own church. 
Second, so the first thing is a commitment to the word. Second, where the word is not sufficiently clear. And what I mean by that is in specific life situations or things that arise in culture, modern culture that may not be specifically addressed in Scripture. What we do is we seek the direction and the, the, the voice of the Holy Spirit, but always within the boundaries of this book. But what I, what I mean by that is that the Holy Spirit will never violate the word of God, either specifically or in a principle. Can I get an amen on that? Never will he do that. When the church faced a widespread doctrinal crisis in Acts 15, there there was this issue about what people had to do to really be saved. Do they have portions of the Jewish law they had to hold to, or, or are they just saved by grace like we believe? When they faced that for the first time, what the apostles did, they gathered and they prayed. And they prayed and they prayed. And when they, when they felt like they'd heard God's voice, they sent a letter to the churches with these words beginning. They, they told these churches under their supervision, they said, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What happened there? They made a decision based on their sense of, of what they believed the Spirit was saying. And none of it was contrary to the written word of God. Lastly, The way we let Jesus rule is through his word and through the direction of the spirit. But we let Jesus rule as the head of the church through, and listen to me carefully, through mutual accountability. Mutual accountability. This means that no one, that no one, no matter how called, no matter how gifted, no one gets to be a dictator in the church, benevolent or otherwise. Nobody does. No one's got the direct line to Jesus that they don't need you. No one has that. I said in a message back in April on eldership that when Jesus said to Peter on a beach in John 21, he said to him, feed my sheep. The emphasis of that statement that Jesus made to Peter was on the word my. You see, they're not Peter's sheep and they're not Mark Sharp's sheep or Don Litton's sheep, or Daryl Edwards' sheep, or David Walt's sheep, nothing has changed. They're still Jesus's sheep. They always have been, they are currently, and they always will be Jesus's sheep. Because of this, the Apostle James gives a chilling warning, chilling warning to anyone who would pursue leadership and ministry he says this in James 3.1. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Daryl, Don, Dave, me, Paul, several others of you. I imagine, I don't know if this is going to be how it's going to be like, but on Judgment Day, we'll have to wait our turn because while you may give account for your life and the people that you had influence on, we're all going to give account for every single one of you. Did you hear me? There's a stewardship responsibility when you presume to lead the church. There's a stewardship responsibility, and Jesus takes it very seriously. Why is this the case? Because we're stewarding royal property that does not even belong to us a little bit. You are Jesus's sheep. So no matter where you roam, listen to me, maybe this will be your home church till you die. I hope it is, or at least till I die. I don't care what you do after that. But (laughs) but if this is... Not your home church till you die. If you find yourself in a church with a leader that set himself up as the final unaccountable authority, the best thing you can do for yourself is hightail it out of there. Get out. But be warned. Be very, very, very warned. 
That doesn't mean that the leadership of the church has to bend to every one of your whims and, and, and every one of your directives because you too must be accountable to both the leaders of the church and your fellow members. You have to be. This is not a one-way street. See, the Bible says clearly that we're to obey and submit to our leaders in Hebrews 13, 17. And while that doesn't mean, as I just suggested, that, that, you do, that you're to submit to them blindly, no one's suggesting that. It also means that you have no right as the body to enforce a level of accountability that you yourself are not submitted to. Just let it sink in just a little bit. Let's, let's marinate. You want to? You don't have the right to enforce a level of accountability that you yourself are not submitted to. Jesus rules the church through his word, through his spirit, and through mutual accountability of the body. Me to you and you to me. And all the church said in unison. All right. Well, today, as we do every Sunday, we're going to gather around the table and we're going to receive the Lord's Supper one of the things that we embrace here at NRLC doctrinally is John Calvin's teaching on the spiritual presence of Christ. And I'm going to explain that. See, I mentioned the Catholic Church earlier. They teach that the bread and the contents of the cup miraculously become, in the partaking of them, the literal flesh and blood of Jesus. We don't hold to that view at all at NRLC. In and of itself, this is just bread and this is just juice in and of itself. but and obviously we're not suggesting that they have any inherent magical or spiritual power, but this unbiblical belief is why Roman Catholics treat the elements themselves with such extreme but misplaced reverence. They, they believe that the priests are charged with handling the actual body and the actual blood of Christ. Now, if you were charged with that, how serious would you be? Pretty serious, right? And they make sure that no crumbs fall to the ground or no unordained person serve the elements and that the elements themselves literally are worshipped or adored as Jesus. Well, in great reaction to this, Holdrick Zwingli, who was a Swiss leader of the Reformation, he reacted to all this and he went the other way, completely the opposite direction, and he proposed what we call the memorial view. And this means that nothing inherently supernatural happens at the table. It's just entirely memorial. It's a time to remember Christ and what he did. But if I can be honest with you, I don't think that goes far enough. I don't think that that that's all there is to it. Communion should be so much more than just a memory-jogging snack. Amen? It's interesting that in every account of the Lord's Supper, Christ uses very specific words. He says, this is my body, and this is my blood, and this is the blood of a new covenant. If Zwingli were, were entirely right, why wouldn't he just say, this is a symbol of my body and this is a symbol of my blood? It seems to me that Christ is saying much more. And John Calvin felt the same way. A third view was proposed by him during the Reformation. He taught that through a miraculous working of the Holy Spirit, listen carefully, through a miraculous working of the Holy Spirit, these mere symbols, juice and bread, are made to manifest the real but spiritual presence of Christ causing heaven to literally collide with earth in the partaking of these common elements. And this means, this is where it gets good, folks. Listen carefully. This means that Jesus is especially present when we partake of the bread and the cup. I said Jesus, the creator, 
Jesus, the Savior, the one who healed the blind and the deaf and the lame and cast demons out of people and and was crucified for your sin and resurrected on the third day, I said that he's especially present in the partaking of the bread and the cup. Right here with us. Right here. Right now with us. And if that's true, and you may not believe that's true, that's okay. If that's true, though, what effect? What effect would that have on you? Would you come to this table differently each week? Would you come expecting to encounter him? Would you come with his promise that he's here? Would you come saying, well, if he's there, I'm going to go find him. I'm going to go touch him like the woman with the issue of blood. I'm going to meet him if he's there. If you're sick, would you expect to be met at this table with healing? If you're doubting, if you're confused, and we all are sometimes, would you come to this table expecting to receive answers? If you were in distress or depression or turmoil, would you come expecting to find peace and satisfaction and joy? If you were still this morning enslaved by sin, could you, would you come expecting to meet the only true Savior and find total forgiveness in his name? In the Gospels, when people heard that Jesus was in their neck of the woods, what'd they do? Well, they came running, didn't they? Came running. The sinful, the blind, the deaf, the lame, the forsaken, the demon-possessed, all came for one simple reason. He was there. They came because he was there. They didn't come just for what he said or not even just for what he did. They came for Jesus himself. They came because he was there. They knew that if they could just get to him, he would forgive, he would heal, he would embrace, he would restore, he would deliver if they could just get to him. Buckle your seatbelts. Anybody here ready for some good news? That same Jesus that a bunch of first century Jews came running to is here today. He's here. And that same Jesus has invited you to this table this morning to experience all that I just listed. All, every bit. He's not withholding anything. All of his grace is here this morning. All of it. And he's waiting to meet with you and lavish it on you as you feast on him together with the universal body of believers all around the world. Now we've spoke this morning. It may seem like I kind of took a detour there. No, stay with me. We spoke this morning of how Christ is the head of the church. And if you believe it, if you believe that he is, I am telling you that it is at these tables, at these tables where he proves it. It's at these tables where Jesus proves, hey, I'm in charge here. I, I paid a price with my broken body, with my spilled blood to, uh, to open up an invitation of feasting and grace to you that you could never have gotten on your own. I'm in charge here. I'm the master of the table. And I am the giver of grace, is what Jesus is saying to you this morning. He proves it right here. It's where he meets you. It's where he bestows his love on you. It's where everything that we've learned about him becomes real as we gather as one body with all the other saints in worship and gratitude in his presence. So as you come this morning, I'm calling you. I'm calling you to come in faith expecting not just to go through the line and get your little piece of bread, but I'm expecting you, I'm I'm inviting you rather to come expecting an encounter with the living Christ.